I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For years past, our industry had been strangled by the exchange value of our money being too high. The market is, uh, I was going to say, most ingenious, but ingenious without having been designed. But in a... Herky-jerky, but dramatic matter. Business moves forward, government moves forward, more important, people move forward. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, capitalism, it is the best economic system ever. Well, it works better than socialism did during the Soviet era, for example, and it has created untold wealth that probably wouldn't exist without it. But is it the only model? And is it creaking at the edges now as we struggle to heat our homes and see people being fed from food banks and we steadfastly refuse to take on the destruction of the planet seriously? Is there a halfway house to capitalism? Well, there used to be. Should we try and get back there? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, yeah, where are we right now? I mean, we're in a society where social media has made everything very divisive. The rich seem to be getting richer. Everyone in the UK seems to be on strike. Prices are going up to the point where, you know, you can't afford fundamentals. The poor are becoming more reliant on food banks. People are protesting as governments become more autocratic. Mm. That is the world in 2023. Capitalism has fought off socialism and communism for, for decades but is it really working as we want it? You know, Steve, what has gone wrong with capitalism? <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> At the top level. I mean, it isn't working, is Well, I mean, it? Yeah, capitalism, uh, it's actually, the, probably the best expression was given by James Buchanan, who's one of the very original ecological economists, and one of his great lines was to say, anybody who believes in uh, continuous growth on a finite planet is either a madman or an economist. And I said the only mistake, <laughs> he made the mistake, he didn't put and in there. Right. Uh, because you know, I think they're all mad uh, by, by not realising the physical limits we face on a physical biosphere. But yeah, fundamentally, uh, capital, capitalism worked very well in what Buchanan also called the cowboy economy days. You had this wide open spa- uh, spaces to expand into whole lots of virgin territory that hasn't yet been incorporated into a capitalist economy. You can expand indefinitely yeah. and whatever waste you cause, you're leaving behind you. You're moving into new virgin territory. So that's when capitalism works extremely well. So great for a gold rush. Great for a gold rush. Great for innovation. And this is, I mean, if you have to always say, why did capitalism as practice defeat socialism as practiced? And it comes down to the fact that capitalism gives an enormous impetus to innovation. So, the, the, I mean, we, we, you and I look back on the, the days of our youth when we lived in a mixed economy and, uh, and things were socially very good. A person, a sole wage earner could support a, fa- a large family. Um, you, you had a level of leisure 
relatively speaking, higher than what we see these days, certainly less insecurity mm. than people suffer from today. So my parents never had the level of social insecurity that I see all around me in, in people of their you know, respective ages now raising raising families. So it was a more secure environment. But we drove around in old-fashioned cars. We didn't have mobile phones, blah, blah, blah. We had low expectations. So mum and dad, you know, their idea mm. of a holiday was going up to the Lake District, 100 miles up the road. Well, my case brought the car. Hop in the car and drive to Port Macquarie yeah. in in New South Wales. Yeah, um, but it was a very comfortable. Um, but but I mean, nobody thought of flying overseas, for example. Mm. Okay, now all that technology has been developed to enable that in the last. 60 to 70 years, and it's remarkable technology. And people would say, well, that is thanks to capitalism. And it is. It genuinely is. Mm. If you look at uh, why did socialism not do the same thing, it comes down to uh, the point that Janos Korno made, the great Hungarian economist, about the difference between a resource-constrained and a demand-constrained economy. And he said the Soviet economies were resource-constrained. They were all developing economies. They weren't advanced. Marx got that wrong. He thought revolution would first occur in the advanced capitalist economies and therefore all the innovation would already be done. Now, in fact, the revolutions occurred in third world countries, Russia, a very backward Russia at the time. This was still a, still a, a feudal society. China. Uh, so th- those societies needed to drastically industrialize and therefore they developed five-year plans to take the take the place of capitalist innovation and in those five-year plans every sector needed to expand every sector deserved resources therefore nobody got as much as they wanted everybody was resource constrained and therefore the easiest way to meet your large increase in the physical targets you were set every year by the five-year plan was to produce last year's product mm. so you never got innovation again I've made this example many many times but that you know brother of a, my old girlfriend buying a a 650cc Cossack motorbike. And that 1973 Cossack was a 1942 BMW. Mm. So innovation, capitalism succeeded in innovation. It's demand constraint. The way you get demand inside your factory door rather than your rival factory door, a rival that you didn't have for the Cossack manufacturer in Russia, of course, was to innovate. And so that innovation pressure is what's led to the technologically advanced society we live in today. Right. And so that, that is the core of capitalism. That's isn't the it? core Capital, of capitalism. Capitalism only survives through innovation. Because of innovation, yeah. yeah. And, so, and if, you, if we didn't have that. So, I mean, does that mean that we are more innovative these days than we were in that mixed economy that we grew up? No. A huge part of the innovations occurred back then. And like we talk about how the internet transformed everything. Electric power was a far more important transformation mm. in terms of its impact upon the standard of living we all enjoy. Yeah. Well, the internet itself, of course, came out of, came out of public sector investment. Yeah, that's anyway. right. It wasn't yeah. a private sector thing anyway. Mm. So, so there's uh, the innovation has, has, has always been a feature of capitalism. And in fact, in many ways, the innovation rate was higher in the 50s and 60s than it is now because so much more goes into speculation now rather than into actual industrial development. But nonetheless, as a social system, capitalism promotes innovation. And a huge part of the knowledge we've acquired in the last quarter of a millennium has come out of capitalist ventures. So the fact that the steam engine was invented uh, was was you know, what's reason for in, inventing the governor that made his steam engine so much more efficient than the others was the capacity to pump the water out of the coal mines 
that, that led to the um, you know that provided the energy for the factories in Scotland, and that led to the huge growth of the industrial revolution. So it's it's vitally important that innovation, and that's part of what we are as a species as well. Mm. No other species invents new things. So that's that's capitalism fits in with that part of our. So we've got to keep that. Whatever, whatever we've got to we, keep it as best we can. So, but what is so? What is wrong with a more laissez-faire <clears throat> approach then that we've because seen a lot more? Because we don't of. live on a laissez planet. Right. If we lived on a planet the size of Jupiter, mm. uh, then that wouldn't be a problem. We'd still be just, we'd barely be getting anywhere near to the rim of the red spot. Right. right now, so it's the know? constraint on resources. The constraint is resources. Yeah. And, and the physical fact, we, when, when we generate waste, and we have to generate waste, when you produce something, you necessarily generate waste. Uh, that waste is dumped in the biosphere. So why, how does the US get away with it then? Because they, they are a far more laissez-faire economy than, you know, the, the most other parts of the world and are... Well, they're dumping benef- the waste elsewhere. Right, okay. I mean, and the thing is, we're all dumping. No, well, nobody, why are they charged for that? Huh? Why are they charged for that then at a realistic rate? You know, if, if they are dumping elsewhere, why wouldn't the countries that they're dumping for, saying the only reason your economy is doing really well is because you are paying an unrepresentative price for this? Ask Larry Summers. When he was, I think was he, he was part of the World Bank at the time and said how it was economically sensible to generate more waste in Africa than in, in America. Uh, we, ultimately, we can't price our way out of the fact that we're on a, a physically bounded planet. Mm. So we have to find, we have to constrain capitalism at that level because capitalism uh, succeeds by ignoring its constraints. And you dump, you, you, you privatise your profits and socialise your losses is one of the classic expressions I know from some of my more capitalist friends. But the ultimate... And the US is very good at that. Extremely obviously. good at it, yeah. yeah. The thing is, that is not good for the biosphere. Yeah. And we're now... I mean, the, the denialism that I see as well about climate change drives me bonkers. Uh, but ultimately, we, we have exceeded what this biosphere can support quite radically. It isn't a case that we're approaching limits. We've gone well and truly past them. Now we're going to see the climatic feedback. So you can't have unrestrained innovation while we're constrained to a physical biosphere. So and that it- means you can't have free-range capitalism. Yeah, and yeah, interestingly, I mean, you know, a lot of people who are supposedly supportive of a more laissez-faire approach are also often the same people who are supporting subsidies to industries, particularly fossil fuel industries. Mm. So, so Australia's support to the fossil fuel industry, according to numbers from those very good folk at the Australia Institute, <clears throat> God bless them, uh, they reckon fossil fuel industry uh, got in 2021 to 2022 sorry, $11.6 billion in support from the government. You know, a chunk of that was uh, building infrastructure, like building a railway to take coal mm. from the Hunter Valley. If the, if the Hunter Valley coal industry believes that it's got a, uh, a, you know, a viable business model, build your own bloody railway, surely. <laughs> and, and you know, similarly, um, road construction for fracking in the Northern mm. Territory, um, you know, governments, of course, look at this, don't they? They go, well, okay, if we spend this money, then that's a useful return on investment for, for our economy. Rather than just saying to those econ- to, to those industries, "We'll just do it yourself," if you believe it's going to yeah, work. Yeah, but, for but you. even if we we have we have to accept that we live on a planet, mm. not a whiteboard. Yeah, okay? and the planet any waste we any any production we do on this planet generates waste, which is also absorbed on this planet, and then can. Back in the in the, the the cowboy economy days, the waste was trivial compared to the unexploited expanses we hadn't yet ex- uh, moved into. We've now moved into all those expanses, and 
we will be destroying the capacity to maintain life on this planet if we continue expanding. So capitalism has to be constrained. You have to still allow the the innovation, but you have to limit at a social level how much can be produced. And you have to also control the distribution of income because the whole idea that capitalism is a meritocracy has been being sunk by the last 40 years of neoliberalism. Yes, there are some individuals who get a great reward for the innovations they generate. I'm not going to mention, let's mention Bezos this time, Mm. uh, because as much as people complain about Amazon, it's damn lot easier to buy a book now than it was before that company came about. So in terms of retail, he innovated a very uh, effective retail system. And that's why you've got an effective monopoly people are complaining about is because it was a very successful innovation. Right. So it's taken he, away a lot of jobs, though, in the process, of course. Yeah, so is yeah. that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it, you know, they... It, it's, it, it, the question is, if, if, if that then has impacts on the aggregate level of employment, then yes, that's a bad thing. And that's why MMT has got its job guarantee proposal. Um, you don't want that leading people to being unwilling to leave their jobs because they're afraid of being devastated. Or universal basic income, so people can sit at home and read those books that they bought off Amazon. There you go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I want UBI for all economists so they can retire and stop doing damage. Uh, that's my main reason for UBI. <laughs> and read your books. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, look, when we come back, um, we'll, we'll get... Uh, Get off the, 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 the perhaps the climate change um, approach for just for a second, just because that wasn't a concern when you and I were growing up. So why did we have a mixed economy when, when you and I were growing up when we weren't so concerned about the planet? We'll do we'll talk about that in just a second. It's the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Back in just a second. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So you've given all the, all the reasons, Steve, why we should be concerned about the environment and the constraints on resources, mm. and mm. Uh, and therefore that's why we need to go back to, you know, as things were in our youth. I, I, in our youth, obviously, I was a lot younger. Mm. Uh, you were far... far I'm ancient. Yeah, you, know, you were far further through the education system while mm. I was just in, in a pram. But back in that, I mean, it, it was common, though, around the world. You know, Australia, you were growing up in Australia, I was growing up in the UK. It was a mixed economy, and, yeah. uh, you know, there was a, a bit more of a socialist overtone, perhaps, to, to the way economies mm. were run. 
But that wasn't because of that constraint, that concern about using too many of the planet's resources. What was driving it back in those oh, days? You, you've got to go back to, again, it's events that drove us to that situation. So you had the, the Great Depression, mm. and the Great Depression was preceded by the, the boom economy of the, the, the 1920s. Now, the boom economy was entirely a speculative Wall Street-driven economy. Uh, my favorite examples come from America and Calvin Coolidge. Coolidge ran a 1% of GDP surplus every year during the 1920s and believed that was why the economy was booming. In fact, it was booming because with the private sector's money supply being reduced by the surplus, uh, people were going out and borrowing money and gambling on sh- on share prices. Mm. And so, for example, the level of margin... Pure speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The level of margin debt rose from 1% of GDP in 20, 1920 to 8.5% by 1929. So people were making up... You're getting wealthy by using private money creation to gamble in a speculative bubble. Then you had the crash coming out of that inevitable crash leading to the Great Depression. And the period, the, the, the privations for the vast majority, like 25% of the workforce was unemployed in America. Privations were so extreme, there was actually quite a good chance for a socialist revolution in America and in, in parts of Europe as well at that time. And of course, out of that, we got Nazism and, and then the Second World War. And that was such a shock to the body politic that the attitude became we have to take care of the average person. We can't go for the laissez-faire attitudes of the 1920s. That led to the 1930s. That led to the Second World War. It was a disaster. So we have to say we make our society benefit the poorest in society. And my favourite quote from those times actually comes from the White Paper on Full Employment from the Australian government written by a wonderful uh, a public servant known as Nugget Coombs. And Nugget Coombs had this wonderful phrase in the white paper saying, the objective of government policy is to maintain such a pressure on employment as to guarantee a shortage of men rather than a shortage of jobs. So the whole thing was an attitude about a socially fair society, Mm. first and foremost. And that became a target for the Austrian economists, the neoclassicals, et cetera, et cetera. It was anti-free market. And so they really spent the next 30 or 40 years, Milton Friedman in particular, Hayek and co and so on, trying to undermine that vision of a welfare, uh, of a a, a socially responsible welfare state, Mm. which is what you and I grew up in. And it, it, it was a far more comfortable place to live in than the world that kids these days are experiencing. And yet, ironically, you know, governments, as a percentage of GDP, governments are spending a lot less in those days than than they are today. So if we look today, so, you know, you'd think, well, it's going to be a big ask to say move away from a laissez-faire approach because the economies that are more laissez-faire, the government spends less. So the US government in 2019, looking at... because all the numbers obviously have been skewed by the pandemic. So let's yeah. go back to just before. Yeah. The US government spent 35% of GDP in 2019 compared to 38% in the UK, 39% in Australia, and wool, 48% in Sweden. So look mm. at the gap, 35% in the US to 48% in Sweden. Mm. But both are doing quite well, aren't they? Mm. Both mm. are, you know, irrespective of how much the government is, the government is spending. But you would look and say, well, okay, the U.S. is generally doing better, though. It's the global economy. You know, it's the leading economy. It spends less government money 
therefore capitalism is working for them. Yeah, but if you go back and see where the level of government spending in America is far, far smaller before the Second World War and before the Great Depression. Mm. So the growth in government actually historically, when you, when you look at where it came from, it was really because of failures in a, in a completely private economy system. So again, that Coolidge period where Coolidge was reducing the scale of the government by 1% of GDP per year and government debt fell from 30% of GDP at the beginning of the 1920s to 15% by the... Uh, beginning of the 1930s. Uh, that led to the huge speculative excess of the 1920s. Uh, booming economy, while people continued borrowing money, but then it came crashing down in the Great Depression. And in that situation, the, the pressure, the, 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 there was a, a possibility of a socialist takeover of America. Mm. And so the st attitude of the state was we simply have to provide unemployment benefits, have to provide health services, education, has to be provided. Right. So all these things were things which you couldn't make profit out of it because the people who needed it were poor and most of them unemployed. So the growth of the state began in the 1930s and the 1940s. But stopped somewhat. So they provided all of those oh, essentials. But, but, so you look at, you compare what's yeah. provided in uh, in Sweden versus what's ha what's happening in the United States, for example, yeah. and obviously a far more socialist approach in, in Sweden, whereas the US would say, well, we don't need that. You know, we're, we're doing well without all that stuff. Okay, we're, we've taken care of the, you know, the, the absolute essentials. We don't need to do any more than that because we want innovation and the, this laissez-faire approach. So, the, you know, we... Because we, otherwise it's socialism. And we, you know, that's a swear word. We miss. <laughs> well, it's a swear word America's going to have to get used to. And, of course, the other massive thing about America's... Got but they, why would they have to get used to it when they're doing so well? No, they're not doing it. so well. I mean, what the, you'd be ignoring, obviously, the health... Uh, health system in the states. Mm. We have the lowest level of uh, of uh, health in the global economy in terms of wealthy economies is actually America. Mm. Lower life expectancy, uh, in, the privatizing the health has made it inaccessible for the vast majority. Yeah. So a large part of why we, we do have state provision is because the income distribution in the economy is such that if you're at the bottom end, you can't afford so many essential services and you'll die. And therefore, that leads to demands for socialism and if you don't provide them via state provision uh, then you will get actual socialism so uh, it, it, and interesting actually i think if you added together the state the state spending and private spending on health in the united states it'd be greater than any it's, of it's almost double in fact what it is in the uk I yeah, think. It's, yeah. It's, it's, so it, has... it shows there are some things which are better provided on a on a per capita basis mm. well, it, it, there's a great example you might remember from australia with the old kerry packer uh, the guy gave uh, uh, his kidney to uh, him. No, K Kerry Packer died while playing polo yeah. and survived because an ambulance came by and the ambulance happened to have a defibrillator. Yeah. And he was stunned and said, that's magnificent. You have these all, have all, all the ambulance have them die. Oh, no, we're just lucky. So he bought an, a, a defibrillator for every every uh, uh, ambulance in the country yeah. so that, that anybody who had a heart attack would have a, an ambulance that could actually revive them. Now, that, that sort of thing, yes, he did it once, you know, it's sort of act of love, of, of, of noblesse oblige, but the reality is you want the public sector to provide it so everybody has access to health at any point they need it. Equally for education, there's so many things you want as a background on which you build capitalism, not ones that you leave holes for us to fall into, which will lead to people saying, socialism looks like a good idea.
Yeah, but it, how are we going to? Just on that, by the way, wasn't it? Was it K Packers? Was it the the driver of that uh, of that helicopter, or was it his his chauffeur? Somebody gave him a kidney. Uh, so I think his driver. Yeah. So there we are. So uh, yeah, there's the yeah looking after the rich. Well, I guess looking after his employee. You know, <laughs> if he wants him to carry on carry on living, he wants to keep on driving him around. So those uh, those those countries I mentioned. So the U.S., the U.K., Australia, and Sweden with that um, that government spending. This sort of goes with your point that it used to be a lot less. So the government, if we, even more recently than you know the 1930s. So if we look at uh, how GDP rose through the six from the 60s through to the 90s or the turn of the century. So in 1960, the UK spent 33% of GDP. The government spent 33% of GDP. The US spent 28%. Australia spent only 21%. Sweden was spending 24%. Now compare that to 48% now hmm. in Sweden. So these numbers have skyrocketed. Uh, then we got to the, to the 1990s through to, you know, uh, through to the turn of the century. Hmm. And all of that increase stopped for some reason i guess had we gone far enough is that because governments decided that they'd invested enough and they needed to was it you know the work of friedman to like coming through what what what, or was it just because it couldn't have kept on going of course you couldn't get to the stage of being 100 percent um but there's uh, you know, you, you, a large um, number of things, like for example, Richie Sunak and the, you know, the mathematics till the age of 18. You need mathematics teachers for that. Mm. So you, where are you going to get them from? You're not going to get them from the private sector. Um, so you, you, you do have to provide a, 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 there's a large amount of things which a capitalist economy should provide de rigueur not as something you've got to be able to pay to get it. Mm. So like you know, public health, for example, you don't want to have to pay to have uh, uh, you know, toilets everywhere uh, individually. You therefore get parts where the toilets can't be afforded and therefore you get a cholera outbreak in that area and the disease will spread through the whole of society. So there are so many things which are social. If you think about who's consuming them, it's society, not individuals. So in terms of consuming education, yes, of course, an individual learns, gets an education. Who gets the benefit from it? Society as a whole. So there's a huge range of things of that nature. That leaves a diminished amount that you can say you want private innovation on, but it's still a huge amount. So we're seeing innovation in electric vehicles, uh, rockets, and not just Musk, of course, on that front. We're seeing it. He's just the starter of that, but there's a, a huge range of innovation in in space technology right now. Um, so there's tons of room for innovation still to occur, but we have to have it as something that doesn't destroy the physical basis of our civilization, and we are destroying it. So we can't have unconstrained capitalism, and we will have to have, I think, in the future, even more of a government role, not because that's better or worse than the private sector, but because if we're forced into degrowth, then the private sector is not going to be able to handle it, whereas the government can create the money to enable commerce to still continue as you reduce the scale of economic activity. So do we say then, to get back to this mixed economy that you know of, uh, of, of the 70s, do we say, and 70s and 80s really, well, well no, 70s, it's all gone by the 80s, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, do, we, do we say that um, you know, the, there's clear, a clear delineation? Do we say, well, okay, there's essential services, there's health, there's education, those are the things that uh, the state needs to provide. Mm. The private sector's got no influence in that? 
Doesn't that cut out innovation in those sectors? Not no, it, not no influence, but um, I mean, there are elements of, of how you hold together a, a diverse society, and we have incredibly diverse societies these days with the migration around the world. And uh, if you enable, a, like with private education, to take over, what people will start doing is offering private education for this group and that group and, and so on, and you start getting people breaking into small private sector groups, and they don't mix. Mm. And without the mixing, you start getting the antagonism between social classes. Like, so, like a prime minister with Rishi Sun- like Rishi Sunak, who's on, on film having said not so long ago, I don't have any, uh, uh, I don't have any working class friends. Yeah, well, that was obvious when he went to working in a, uh, in a, in a, in a homeless. Was he working in a food bank? Yeah, over asked, Christmas. That's yeah. right. And saying, "Oh, have you ever thought about working in the finance sector?" Yeah, a man totally out of touch. Exactly. So, case in point. Yeah, yeah. you see, you, you for society to function, people have to be aware of how different parts of it behave to some extent, mm. and the education. Uh, you know, where you're all chucked into the same melting pot, I think it's preferable to where you can choose your melting pot and therefore have no understanding of how part of your society actually functions and you fill in those gaps with racism. So uh, how do you get, though, to because if, you, if you've got this mixed economy, how do you get, and this is a bit like we were talking about last week, governments to spend effectively? Because governments are very bad at, at spending money or making appropriate decisions. So the, so the UK government spent at least... Three hundred and seventy billion pounds on the response to the COVID pandemic. That this is the UK's Public Accounts Committee. They reckon mm. at least fifteen billion of that is fraud or error. Fifteen billion, but just that massive figure of three hundred and seventy billion. I'm sure that we could have got through the pandemic with with, with less government spending, uh, and that's ignoring you know the large amount of that money that will you know large point of part of it was fraud. But there's also just plain inefficiency in amongst all of that. How do you make things work effectively? Without capitalism, you know, so so pure capitalists would say, well, look, you know, we would have done a lot better if, you know, if it had all just been hived off to private enterprise, we would have got a much better response for a lot less money. They would say that. Whether they we would believe say or not. that. Yeah. You wouldn't take them seriously, I hope, <laughs> after the experience of being sold the pup of neoliberalism by Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. But, yeah, it, it's uh, it, 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 there's so much ideology and there's so little practical experience and actual knowledge of the nuts and bolts of how a society operates in how we make our decisions. That no wonder we stuff up. Mm. Now, there's some things which you say, look, yes, you can't provide quality education to 100% of your population if you have 100% privatised education. Okay, The poor are going to be uneducated. Uh, uh, you're going to not have the people... Uh, literacy skills you need. You're not going to have, to some extent, social cohesion skills taught as well. You simply have to say that's better provided by the state. Yeah. Okay. So you make your decisions based on the on the suitability of that particular product for um, <clears throat> one production system or another. Like, for example, I'm you know a favour of, of of state education and state-owned universities, but I want those state-owned universities to have private food outlets. Mm. I mean, again, one of my experiences during the seventies was just how okay. bad the canteen food was provided by at universities, and then. Uh, with the huge influx of Asian, you're not going to tell me they didn't. They didn't have crushed avocado on toast for breakfast. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how you got by. And crushed bam on toast was closer <laughs> to it. But what you got instead was this incredible infusion of all these, you know, small 
eateries coming in, yeah. and that gave you the, the capitalist, the innovative side of it, and, and the range. So there's some things which are clearly better done by the private sector. So, yeah, for Others. sure. So, is it, so isn't it then just a case of, 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 of saying, well, okay, here's where the delineation lies, and it's, you know, we, it, it has to be education, it's got to be health, yeah. uh, utilities, railways. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people are almost coming around. Oh, you know, it, interesting, you know, the, a former Liberal leader was saying all of this and everyone was going, you know, what a Trotsky. Uh, but now we're all coming around to that thinking because we've suddenly got hit with high energy prices. Yeah. The, the train network in Britain is just falling apart hmm. uh, and is expensive uh, and unreliable. So, yeah. And, and, of course, that was one of the things which... 40 years ago, Maggie Thatcher was going to be saying so much better when we privatise yeah, it. Absolutely. It's certainly shown not to be the case. Yeah. So do you think we are just going to slip back into that then by, I think by we, nature? I think we will because... Um, Quite quickly, I suspect. Yeah, you know, it's 40 years of experience and mm. it's finally sinking through the people that didn't work all that well. They'd be better off if it was publicly owned. And there are some things, you know, like you know, the whole idea of a rail network being privatised means you've got a private monopoly. Yeah, and once you've got the private monopoly, why should you invest? You can just put up the prices to the point of, you know, tolerance, pain tolerance for people, and get a large margin, and you're basically siphoning off private money. Yeah. So yeah, the the the, the I think the local the, monopolies, but actually it also it uh, it helps train drivers as well because they can choose which franchise they're going to work for. You know, you can sort of like you've got one company to offset against another if you're you know pushing for a higher wage. Uh, you know. It hasn't worked that well. I, th I think it's uh, – but, but, yeah, there are certainly uh, – the, the, the experience of the last 40 years should teach us that you don't want a completely private capitalist economy. Yeah. You need a mixture of the two. It's a yin and yang thing. It's a balance between the two rather than going for the extremities that uh, socialists on the one side, Austrians on the other push for. What I also find disturbing is when you get uh, local authorities and governments as well, but just trying to claw back money in any way they can. So, for example, uh, you can't go anywhere in Sydney without driving on a toll road. If you lived in Penrith in Sydney's west and you worked in the city, it's going to cost you $52 a day in tolls to get to, from Penrith to the city, which is just crazy. Why wouldn't, you know, and, and those people uh, are, you know, the, the less well-off in Sydney. Yeah, that's, why yeah. they, that's why they live in Penrith. So it's like a reverse taxation. And then local councils in the UK, local councils make almost $2 billion uh, in uh, parking fines from people who've overstayed. Top, well, actually, parking fees and parking fines. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's going to stop you shopping or staying very long in the in the town centre. It goes against exactly what the local council would want to see as yeah, being an yeah. objective. But they're it's doing counterproductive that ideology. Because they need that money to yeah. try and make ends meet. Uh, so that's another... And that is because of this mentality of it all has to... You know, the it's a user pays mentality, isn't it, really, yeah, that yeah. we're seeing? And the thing is, user pays only works if the user has money. Yeah. But with the distribution of income we get out of a pure capitalist economy vast majority can't afford it, and you get a dysfunctional society. So we do need to accept the, the yin and yang between the private and public sector and try to work for a balance where we're driven by two ideologies, one that pushed for 100% state ownership and the other 100% private. Uh, those extremities, neither of them work. It's a balance. You need a balance of the two systems. Right. The problem is, of course, if you're in the EU, which the UK is not, this goes right against the EU's whole approach, doesn't it? This mm. idea of a mixed economy. Yeah. Uh, you can't have state subsidies. Uh, so, and, and a lot of trade agreements around the world as well are being uh, adjusted 
because of this because they don't allow this you know it's you you've basically you know a lot a lot of companies countries are having to say well we can't go down this road because we've got trade agreements with the united states for example mm. which are not allowing us to so for example australia and that's and all the neoclassical united- economics imposing it through yeah political so treaties the, so the u.s saying you can't subsidize pharmaceuticals for example in the trade agreement i had with australia because yeah. uh, because that's going to be uh, not to the benefit of our pharmaceutical industry you can't bulk buy pharmaceuticals you know the government can't bulk buy them uh, because that means it's going to be lower cost and we want free trade we want uh, the ability to rip you off to the greatest extent possible there's so much we need to rip out of the neoliberalism has pushed its way into our society in such a destructive way there's so much to be removed yeah well can you see it happening not in any deliberate sense i think when we start seeing, again, back to ecological, when things start breaking down an ecological scale, uh, you're going to need a much more interventionist government, whether people like it or not. And if treaties are in the way of it, they're going to, treaties are going to be ignored. And we do seem to be going the other way in lots of ways, even it, despite the circumstances we find ourselves in. So, Because there's, there's an element, isn't there? On the one side, you say, well, OK, there's areas which just clearly have to be government-owned and government-operated. Yeah. You also need regulation for the areas which are open to competition. And that, that, beca- that can become divisive because exactly what is that, that mm-hmm. regulation? So we had regulation on, uh, on banking controls, for example, in many parts of the world because of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And uh, now in the UK, we've got Jeremy Hunt, the UK Chancellor, pushing for lessening of that banking regulation. He's promising Big Bang 2. Because, oh, my God. Because Big Bang 1 is what Maggie produced. So we, he can save the UK economy just by lessening the regulation on the banking sector. What could possibly go wrong there, Steve? Let's find out in 2023. <laughs> All right. Very good. Look, you've got a cold. You've I've done well. I've got a cold. Yeah, suffering yeah. a bit at the moment. Yeah. Right. So we'll, we'll leave it. We've done enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, mixed economy. Let's go back to that. That's the, that's the summary. They'll have the yin and the yang. Yeah. All right. Good talk, Steve. Catch you next week. Hopefully you're better next week. We'll talk to you then. I certainly hope so. Okay. (laughs) He is just about on his last gasp there. It's fair to say. That is it for this week. Another Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen and myself, Phil Dobby, next week. Thanks for listening. See you then. The Debunking Economics podcast. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.